long to Bloop. tell me that it's recording. Yeah. So I never really know. But I oh, think boy. that now we are officially recording. Hey. I got the little disclaimer saying avoid legal snags and make sure you tell people you're recording them. Oh, wow. So, Reagan, I'm recording you. You have not been telling me that the past. I know, I'm going to run into so many times. legal snags. The snags. The um, snags. I'm drinking coffee out of my dick mug. Yay, your dick mug. The dick mug. Um, we should post a photo of the dick mug. I feel like we've okay. talked about it on the show before. We have. But we can. There's little, little dick and balls and butts. <laughs> Great. I love it. <laughs> you know what? Welcome to Babetown, Taylor. Welcome to Babetown. <laughs> <laughs> Not even mad about that one. I really wish that Dicks and Balls and Butts could be the name of this episode, but I don't I don't know. Is that a legal snag? <laughs> That's gonna be that, the name of this episode. Is that what they warned us about? It's gonna be legal snags. And we're just plowing right in. All over the place. Here we are. We better not wear fancy sweaters because of all these snags. Snags. Right? Jesus. I'm with you. <laughs> I'm never go- not going to try and make sweater analogies. I don't think anyone's stopping you. So good. They better not even try. Because that's something universal. Everybody has at least one sweater. Yeah. Everyone knows the life of the sweater. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, we are going to have to take a quick pause in 20 minutes. So I can take the lid off the bread. That's fine. Dude, the only word I can use to describe this loaf of bread is unruly. They make it look so easy in the recipe. Mm-hmm. It is not. Mm-hmm. They are liars. Yeah. But hopefully it tastes really good. So who cares? Fingers crossed. Fingers very crossed. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, I my head's been awful today slash last night. We had a big storm roll in, mm. and uh, I I like took aspirin today, which I haven't done in months probably. Like I try to reserve it now for like real shitty days, just because like mm. it's been well over a year at this point. So yeah. Um. But I got up and I was like, nope, fuck this shit. And so I took some aspirin and made a big thing of coffee and drank a lot of water. All good so things. Far, so far, nothing. Nothing mm. is. So. Yikes. I'm sorry, dude. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. My little baby cousin left the NICU today. He got, he went home. He's so cute. He's great. He's so cute. <laughs> He's so freaking cute. He's so cute. Wow. You know, and his little mohawk and shit. His little hair. Oh, my God. He's so cute. (laughs) I really am hoping that they end up calling him Kirk because his name is Kirkland. Mm -hmm. And I hope they end up calling him Kirk because then it's like there will be like a little toddler named Kirk. I would love that. I would love that very deeply. I keep telling Evan, like, oh, my God, we're going to have, like, a little kid in our family that's named Kirk. And he was like, why are you so obsessed with this? I was like, it's like having a little child named, like, Gary. I was <laughs> going to say Gary. Like, why? Why? That It's so cute. He was like, yeah, but, like, you know, little kids have to be named that to become 
like adults that are named that. I was like, I know, and I'm obsessed with it. I like I his middle name is Arthur too. So I was like, what if he ends up going by his middle name? And then he's just a little kid that's called Artie. There could be like a little tiny kid named Artie. Oh God, it's so cute. The whole start to finish, it's so cute. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of all of this. Yeah. Wow. That's ridiculous. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. Top notch on the naming. Really, really well done. Good work. Good work all around. (laughs) You guys made a cute kid, you gave him cute names. True. Um, Am I correct in assuming that you are drinking coffee at this moment? I am, out of the dick mug. Dicks and balls and butts. Right, the dick mug. We talked about that. Right. What are you drinking? I saw you swig it, but I missed what it was. I have a a Le Croix. Le Croix. Whatever you, however you. uh, But it's blackberry cucumber. So I'm fancy with my water. So fancy. Mm. It's like a tall boy, too. But it's really skinny. Yeah. It's really, really skinny. Yeah. You keep doing that. Dicks and balls and buds. Wow. So am I correct in you're going first? Yes, I am going first. Um, okay. All right. <clears throat> Here we go. You want to hear about a lady? I really do. Okay. Have you ever heard of... Lakshima by the Maharani of John C. Maybe. She might be on really? my list. No way. Are you kidding me? I have the name John C on my list. Then this is that lady. No way. No way. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Tell, Do you tell know me. anything about her? I don't remember why I wrote down her name. I just remember her name. She's very cool. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So she was born November 18th, my mom's birthday. In 1828, not my mom's birthday, in um, what is present-day Varanasi, India. Mm-hmm. She was born as Manikarnika Tambe. Her nickname was Manu. Um, her mom died when she was four, so her dad raised her alone. She was also raised with, like, amongst, like, a lot of priests and scholars who were really high up in the caste system. So she, like, she wasn't, like, royalty, but, like, was high up. Mm-hmm. Um, her dad worked as an advisor for the Peshwa, which after like a lot of history that I have super, super condensed the shit out of, they basically became the leaders of the Maharatha Confederacy. Okay. So they're like ruling class kind of. Um, so and he's the advisor. Yes. Got it. And so because he was the advisor, they like lived at like in the court. So she grew up learning with all of the dudes in Peshwa's court. Um, so she learned how to horseback ride, sword fight, and do martial arts, like, right along with all the dudes. Great. (laughs) So at this point, it's pre-modern India. Okay. So India at this point was broken up into lots of like, like hundreds of smaller city states, basically with their own rulers. And so she lived in Jhansi. So that's her city state. Okay. So in 1842, She's 14 at the time, by the way. She was married to the Maharaja of Jhansi, and she officially changed her name to Lakshmabai. So um, she, though, was not into all that dumb shit that women are, like, not supposed to do, quote-unquote. So she refused to hide herself from public view, as was customary. She spoke directly to her advisors and to British officials face-to-face, which, like, by the way, we're smack in the middle of, like, British imperialism 
in cool. India. Super cool. Um, she trained all of the women in her court to ride and fight. So she yes. made like her own little personal army of dudes and ladies. Um, she didn't care about what caste you were in. She attended to the poor, which uh, the New York Times said, quote, even today would be considered bold in parts of India. Dude. Like, back in the fucking 1800s. Yeah. Like, that doesn't matter. Um, so in 1848, Lord Dalhousie, I think is how you say it. Okay. Um, he's the governor general of India. He's British. Is governor um, general just like the imperialist ruler yeah pretty much okay at this point it's the um the what's it called east india company okay okay um so he declared that princely states like jansi would be annexed by the british if they didn't have natural born heirs um so it was just a way of kind of being like okay well unless you have a son we're going to be able to take this shit. Um, so it was called the Doctrine of Lapse in 1851. So that was 1848. So a couple years later, um, our girl gives birth to a boy. She names him Damodar Rao, but he dies at only four months old. Oh. So then they don't have an heir. So it was really common, though, for a Maharaja, if he doesn't have an heir, to adopt a son. In fact, the Maharaja that she married and his brother were both adopted heirs. Cool. Um, so it was super common. So he adopts a son who is actually a distant cousin of his named Anand Rao. But it's confusing because after they adopted him, they named him Damodar Rao, which was the name of their first son that died. Yeah. Must be a cultural. I don't know. So it's confusing. So I'm just going to call him Anand. Okay. He doesn't really show up much. Um, so the adoption happened one day before the Maharaja died. Um, and it was overseen by a British official who received a letter from the Maharaja saying, quote, I trust that in consideration of the fidelity I have evinced toward government, favor may be shown to this child and that my widow during her lifetime may be considered the regent. So he's like, hey, this is my legit kid. And also my wife gets all this business. So don't be a dick. So don't be a dick. And he's like, they're they're all like, OK, maybe this will be enough to like keep yeah. us from having the doctrine of lapse happen. Did she have any daughters or was, was the, no, she had the ones only on. born. Th- okay. Got it. Yep. Um, so doop, doop, doop. So that makes her official, officially the Maharani. So the Maharaja is like the King. Maharani is like the queen. Um, shockingly, the Brits were not super into that. And in 1853, they offered her a pension if she would cede control, which like, Come on, you guys. She did not cede control. They still gave her the pension, but she had to use it to pay off her husband's debts. So, like, she didn't really get anything. Um, So a dude named Captain Alexander Skeen took control of Jauncey under the doctrine of lapse. Um, She was allowed to keep the palace as a personal residence, and then her son inherited the the Raja's estate, but nothing else. Um. So they're, like, still there, but... But not ruling. They're not ruling. So, um, let's see, where was I? So, uh, continuously over the next few years, she petitioned the East India Company to contest the doctrine, but it didn't work. She did, like, four or five different appeals 
Um, one she did in person where she declared, quote, I will not give up my Jhansi, which like even in today, modern India is still considered like a rallying cry. It was like the thing that like made her like solidified her as like hero. So as all of that's happening with mm-hmm. her, um, there is also a mutiny brewing within British army ranks. What a surprise, because they had a bunch of Indian soldiers in their army and shockingly were treating them like garbage. I'm so, Wow. So they, um, the Indian soldiers were known as sepoys and they were getting increasingly unhappy with the state of affairs for a multitude of reasons. Um, one of which was like, there was a, there was like a command given that if summoned, any soldier had to go overseas. And if you apparently in the caste system, if you are overseas for a significant period of time, you'll lose caste ranking for Hindus. So people were like, uh, no, because that's like the entire basis of like how we are able to live our lives. And then um, there was a thing of uh, there was a rifle cartridge called like Enfield cartridges and they had to be greased up. And there was some debate as to what kind of fat was being used to grease them. So if it was like pork fat or cow fat, then yeah. Yeah, yeah. The Muslims and the Hindus were like, hey, no, like, we can't do that. So then the British soldiers were like, no, 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 this is some other kind of fat. Don't worry about it. But there was no amount of trust there. So people were like, yeah, like this really probably could be used as a way to like weaken, weaken Hindus connection to their faith to make it easier for the British colonialists to convert them to Christianity. So it's just like one thing after another. Um, Yikes. Talking about those cartridges, those rifle cartridges. In May 1857, 85 sepoys refused to use those rifle cartridges um, and subsequently were jailed. (laughs) Because, of course, why not? So in response, three regiments stormed the jail, killed the officers and their families, and marched to Delhi. And were like, we're not doing this. And it was the start of the Indian mutiny. Dude. So... That act basically was a catalyst for all of the grievances that Indian leaders across India had with British imperialism. So Indian leaders saw this as an opportunity and, quote, transformed the mutiny into organized resistance. So June 1857, the mutiny finally reaches Jhansi. Um, Troops there rebelled and shot their commanding officers. So Skeen, that commander that had come in to rule Jhansi, He moves the entire European populace into the fort where they were well equipped to handle a siege. But for some reason, he leads them out of the fort only like three days later, even though they were under siege from Indian troops. And unsurprisingly, they were massacred because they left this then. So then so all of those mutineers then leave for Delhi. So everybody's just kind of heading over to Delhi. So because Lakshmi had so much beef with the British and like, had had so much beef for so long. Everyone, of course, thought that she helped organize this massacre, or at the very least had known about it and turned a blind eye to it. There's, it's still pretty contested as to whether or not she knew about it. um, But there's not a ton of evidence pointing her to having been connected. There's like, there's some testimony from 
some lady, but apparently that was debunked as p- large parts of it being false. So like mm. people don't know. Yeah. Um, but I kind of think that she didn't because she wrote a letter to Calcutta the day after the massacre and was like, yo, here's what went down from my point of view. And like, I did not know about it. And then the next day after she wrote that letter, she wrote another letter asking for the British for assistance because there was so much chaos. So she's like, Hey, like you can bring your troops back in here. I don't give a shit, but like everything is going nuts right now. Yeah. So, um, from Calcutta, she got word that she was then authorized to manage Johnson until soldiers could get there. And she's like, great. Sounds good. Even though local British government was in favor of Lakshmi and believed her, British government as a whole did not. So when they saw her beefing up her defenses, they thought it was against them. When really, because everything was in such turmoil, there were all these threats from neighboring principalities. There was apparently a really, really distant potential claimant to the throne that would have overthrown her and her son. So she's beefing up her defenses, not having anything to do with this mutiny. But the British didn't see it that way, so they considered it an offensive move. So in early 1858, Major General Sir Hugh Rose led troops towards the city. Okay. Uh. So that was in January that he starts marching towards uh, Johnsey. And as late as February, the Ronnie said that she would return the district once they got there. She's like, yeah, like, as soon as you get here, it's fucking yours. Like, I, this is not me. <laughs> She's open the whole time. It's literally just like... It's so wild. So um, I wrote, she doesn't want any trouble, but if you make some, she'll end it. Fair. <laughs> Which like, so at the end of March, uh, Hugh Rose laid siege to Jauncey. Um The Rani was threatened with execution, but she resisted. However, by April 3rd, so in like a week and a half, the British had broken into the city and stormed the fort. The night before they stormed the fort, Lakshmi strapped her 10-year-old son to her back and escaped on horseback. And there is still no real definitive answer on how she did that. People are like, yeah, like, it might have been this guy that helped her, or, like, it might have been a whole crew of people. Like, we don't know how she did it, but she did it. She rode 93 miles in 24 hours and ended up joining up with three other resistance leaders who were basically, like, public enemy number one to the British state. Love to see it. So there's another city-state named Gwalior, I think, is how you say it. Um, And it was in much the same position that Jauncey had been. But they were also, like, a major, uh, like, trading hub. So it was a much more strategically important city for the British to hold than Jauncey. So Lakshmi saw that it was going to be basically the same situation that had happened over in Jauncey, where the British invaded, and there was just going to be, like, thousands of people dead in the streets it it said that um in john c after the siege there were between three to five thousand people dead like there were just people dead in the streets everywhere so she's like whoa 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 can't let that happen so she returns she turns her remaining john c forces which at this point there are not many left to go help fight in gualior so she's fighting in dude clothes so good um when the second day of fighting, she's shot from her horse and fell. Oh. And that essentially was the end of the resistance, um, was when she died. So it basically, like, that was the last battle of the resistance. So British newspapers at the time called her the Jezebel of India, which, like, all right. That sounds, Pretty dope title. But Major General Rose himself, the guy who is the one that charged into Jauncey, 
had like an insane amount of respect for her, which is kind of amazing. Um, he himself compared her to Joan of Arc. He said, the Rani is remarkable for her bravery, cleverness, and perseverance. Her generosity, her, just her subordinates was unbounded. These qualities combined with her rank rendered her the most dangerous of all the rebel leaders. Although she was a lady, she was the bravest and best military leader of the rebels, a man among mutineers. Dude. So, like, <laughs> I just love that like the guy who was her number one opponent is like, this lady's the real deal. Like there, and there's so many quotes of his that are like that. He at one point was quoted as saying, um, it was something along the lines of like, there was only one man that came out of this rebellion and that man was a woman. <laughs> Dude. So good. Like, he was like, all right. Yeah. Like I, I am against you, but wow. I really super respect it. Yeah. Man, that's so Which, cool. you know, you kind of got to enjoy. Um, yeah. So now she is legendary in modern India. There are statues of her in both Jhansi and Gwalior. She is in poems, movies, novels, political commercials, which like kind of barf on that one. It's also pretty funny. Um, so fast forward, okay. 1947, India finally overthrows British rule. Finally. Um, as part of this final successful rebellion, the Indian National Army forged an all-female unit. They named the unit the Rani of Jhansi Regiment. And that is the story of Lakshmi Mumbai, the Maharani of Jhansi. I love her. Isn't she the coolest? Uh, also, <laughs> so good. 10-year-olds aren't small. That just occurred to me. Like, no. I was picturing like a baby baby that she like strapped on and was like, let's do this. But like, they're not, they're not tiny kids. No. Dang. Dang. Wow. 93 miles. So cool. No, thank you. And I love that, like, nobody knows how she did it. Yeah. Like, nobody knows. And apparently, so the, apparently the other three resistance leaders that she fought with, that she, like, had joined up with, two of them were caught and hung in Gwalior the day that she died. And then the third one escaped and, like, Nobody knows where they went. Like, it just said that they escaped and became legends. Like, they dipped, and everybody was like, yeah, I don't know, but, like, wow, super cool. There's actually... Just like this... It's not nearly as cool, don't get me wrong. But <laughs> there's a, like, old-school Chicago gangster criminal that did the same thing. The night before he was scheduled to be executed... He, like, scaled a 20-foot wall, jumped on a moving car, and was never seen again. And he, it's, yeah. I just, I like, there's that. something about, like, not even when they're old. They don't come out to be like, ha, 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 got you. Like, they're gone. They're gone. It's the thing, I was just listening to a podcast, actually, about D.B. Cooper. It's that same thing. Like, D.B. Cooper. I fucking... I love the story of D.B. Cooper because like, yeah, he hijacked a plane and stole $200,000, but no one was hurt. Nobody was hurt. And like, it's just this total mystery. I love it. I love to think that he survived and just hung out on a beach somewhere for the rest of his life being like, I got them. (laughs) I love it. Yep. Um, Anyway, let me source my shit. Real quick. Go for it. Um, so, first of all, Wikipedia, uh, Britannica.com. There's a New York Times article, Overlook No More, Ronnie of John C., India's warrior queen who fought the British. 
excuse me, <laughs> gross, um, that is written by Alicia Gupta. And then historynet.com is where I got most of my information. The title is Who is Manikarnika? The Real Story of Legendary Hindu Queen Lakshmibai. And it's written by Pamela Toller. And that's my shit. I'm literally going into my list of babes and erasing Ronnie of Jhansi right now. Yes. I'm so glad that I stole that out from under you. Did. Ah. Ah. I'm surprised that you had heard of her. I don't even remember how I found her, but she was pretty early on my list. I would say in the first 30. You know. Yeah. Since there's a billion. Um, all right. Are you, are you good? Are you settled? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. Oh, wait. wait. Okay. Yeah, now I'm ready. I know you already know this, but for those listening, I'm going to tell you the story of our queen, Marsha P. Johnson. I figured Ooh. I figured at the end of Pride Month, which honestly, like, let's have Pride just continue all the time and not be like, the month is mm-hmm. over. So, like, let's just have permanent Pride. Right. But I wanted to round out Pride Month with the woman that started it all. All right. So here we go. <clears throat> Buckle up. So Marsha was born Malcolm Michaels Jr., right. On August 24th, 1945, in Elizabeth, New Jersey. She was the fifth of seven children. Um, Her father, Malcolm Michael Sr., worked on an assembly line at General Motors. Her mother, Alberta, was a housekeeper. Very, like, standard, hardworking family, you know. Um, Marcia started wearing dresses when she was around five, but stopped because peer pressure, bullying... And then the boys in her neighborhood started pressuring her to have sex. And so she was like, um, no, thank you. So she stopped wearing dresses because people are assholes. But from everything that I found, like, her family was wonderful from the beginning. Like, Marsha was Marsha and who cares was kind of their whole. Ugh, I love it. So when... I think she was around 12, but she doesn't actually say what age she was. Um, She was raped by a neighborhood boy when he was 13. So very, very young. Horrific. Awful. awful. Yeah. Holy shit. Um, Her family was pretty religious. They grew up in church. And Marsha firmly believed that people should not have sex until they were married. She said, quote, she married Jesus Christ when she was 15 years old, never married anyone else in church because there was no man else she could trust. He would take her seriously. <laughs> I was like, Marsha. Um, <laughs> later in her life, she was drawn to Catholicism and other like houses of faith. But she kept religion very close to her her whole life. She was just a very spiritual person. So it's a time when people who are gay were expected to stay in the dark, be ashamed, go hide, don't tell anyone. And everybody said that Marsha stood stick straight, shoulders back, head high. She was proud. And I Mm. love it. Um, That must have been especially hard uh, being as religious as she was. Yeah. Holy shit. She never talks about 
the idea is conflicting. Like, yes, she is a queer woman. She is a drag queen. And she loves Jesus. No, no, I don't mean from her. I mean from, like, the Everyone else. religious community. Oh, yeah. Trying to push on her, like, this is, quote, unquote, not what the Bible says, even though, like. Yeah. Well, I mean, she, she got out of there pretty quickly. So she graduated hard. high school in 1963 and pretty much immediately moved to New York City. She later said that she moved with $15 and a bag of clothes. She was just getting out of there. But yeah. New York State at the time, they tried to make this sound like good news, folks. But sodomy was downgraded from a felony to a misdemeanor. So oh. still illegal, but not a right. felony. Hooray. Good for us, New York. Um, but wow. same, yeah, same sex dancing in public was prohibited. Bars were banned from serving gay people, alcoholic beverages. The argument being that the gathering of homosexuals was disorderly. I, that's, I'm so confused by so many things of what you just said. So first of all, so same sex dancing is illegal. Dancing. Yes. Sorry. I didn't realize this was footloose. Mm -hmm. like oh my yeah lord people could be charged with sexual deviancy for cross-dressing like you could it was a crime i don't understand Mm. then it says that police enforcement was often quote arbitrary and i'm like huh what a nice word for blatantly discriminatory (laughs) arbitrary that's nice right and also like like sorry no Nothing that police do should be arbitrary. No. Mm-mm. Nope. That's that's not yeah. a word that you want described. Okay. By law enforcement. Yeah. No. Um, so yeah. once she got to New York, she started like switching back and forth, going by Malcolm or Black Marsha. She began work as a sex worker and she said she was arrested so many times. She start she stopped counting after the hundredth time. And it's like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. She talks about it in the documentary. She's like, honey, I've been arrested a million times. I stopped counting after the hundredth. And most of the time she was arrested for loitering with intent to prostitute. So basically they just saw her and were like, well, jail time. What? Wow. What the fuck? One time in the late seventies, she was shot just because she existed and the cops were like, no, 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 no. It's so irritating. Wow. So she went by Black Marsha for a while, but she eventually settled on Marsha P. Johnson. And the P stood for pay it no mind, which is what she would say when people asked her questions about her gender. I love it. Oh, my God. So much. <laughs> uh, oh, my God. Her, her answers to everything, like to every interview question, are incredible. Her sense of humor is flawless. To, so somebody asked her, when did you start doing drag seriously? And she like almost laughs, but says, quote, I never done drag seriously. I always do drag, but I never do it seriously. I don't have the money to do it seriously. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love her. She's my favorite. She's my favorite. Wow. So she's she was homeless for a good portion of her life because the only place that openly trans 
people, even though, okay, so the word trans wasn't widespread at the time. So most people who were trans used, uh, like, drag queen dressed in drag or transvestite. Um, so there weren't a lot of places that openly trans people could stay. So she'd stay at, like, a bathhouse for a while or certain hotels for men in Brooklyn. Um, but most of the time she slept at a movie theater because movies before noon were 99 cents. So she could get in before noon, sleep for the rest of the day, and then go out and live her life at night. Um, so wow. Christopher Street in Greenwich Village is like her domain. She was considered the mayor of Christopher Street. Other queens would be there and probably have pricier clothes and look more like, you know, whatever you would picture a typical drag queen to look like. But they didn't have the attitude. So she was in charge because regardless <laughs> of if her outfit cost three dollars, she had the attitude. So they could all just step off. And I love it so much. Amazing. Um, they also considered her a type of Robin Hood because she would ask people for spare change, a dollar, whatever, and then immediately turn around and give it to somebody who she decided needed it more. Quote, like Jesus with the loaves and the fishes, she always had something for someone. A bag of potato chips, a cookie for a starving queen she knew meant the world. I just, um, can you imagine? Yeah. I love her. Uh, I love her. And they talk about how, like, when people walk past her, she didn't just, like, give the nod or whatever. She always said hello. She always acknowledged every person that went past her, which is remarkable because so many of those people refuse to acknowledge her existence. Just the nicest right. woman in the universe. Ugh. But eventually she won people over. They got to know her. She was obviously a figure of the Greenwich Village neighborhood. And they said even older people who didn't initially accept her like bold brand of activism, they always came around. Her nephew once said she turned the neighborhood. She actually liberated the neighborhood. I love it. Oh my so, god. <laughs> 1969. Here we go. Stonewall Riot. Mm -hmm. Marsha is 23 years old at the time. So we're going to do a little backstory on the Stonewall Inn. So it's a gay bar on Christopher Street in Greenwich Village. And it was a place where Marsha had become one of the first queens to start performing. Because most wouldn't allow even gay dancing, much less drag queens performing. So... Bars had been allowed to serve gay people alcohol for about three years. Wow, thank you so much to the government. Gee. Um, a lot of them were still raided by the police because they could arrest people for holding hands or dancing or whatever. But the Stonewall and a whole bunch of other gay bars at the time were owned and run by the mafia, specifically the Genovese family. Genovese? Probably. I don't know. I think Genovese. That sounds right. But I don't know that for sure. I don't know. Um, anyway, that family, G, we mm -hmm. can call them family G. Let's do it. It's our podcast. Let's um, do it. It's our podcast. Let's do it. But that specific family figured out that they could make a whole bunch of money by catering specifically to the LGBTQ plus community because there was nowhere else that they could go. So mm -hmm. the G family bribed the police to leave the stone wall alone. And once they did, they could do whatever they want. So they cut costs. They, the club didn't have a fire, a fire exit. There was no running water behind the bar to wash glasses. The toilets, like, routinely overflowed. 
They watered down all the drinks. Like they could just do whatever they wanted because they weren't getting like regular raids from the police. Yeah. Um, and they were blackmailing wealthier patrons who wanted to keep their sexuality a secret. So they're just making money. So it's a huge attraction to the gay community at the time. Because imagine a place that you can go and be yourself with no fear. I mean, just can you imagine? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, it was one of the only bars that allowed gay dancing and the entry fee was really, really minimal. So a lot of the youth that were homeless could easily find, you know, a couple dollars or whatever it was to gain entrance to the Stonewall Inn and then they could stay the night. It was one of the only places that welcomed drag queens because other gay people like discriminated against them and looked down on them at the time. And if for any reason a police raid was going to happen, they always gave a heads up. And so they could just stop all illegal activity, hide all the booze, and then they'd walk in and, like, you know, do their little, ah, we're raiding you now. Well, everything looks on the up and up. Okay, so that's the Stonewall Inn. Okay, here we are. Early morning of June 28th, there was a surprise raid. So all these cops bust in with warrants, they find illegal booze, and they arrest 13 people, some of whom they arrest for breaking the cross-dressing law, which... How might they prove that, you ask? Well, the female cops would take them in the bathroom and, quote, investigate their sex. Which is fucking horrendous. Wow. Yeah. I can't even... (sighs) So that raid, that surprise raid, like, the entire LGBTQ plus community was just done. And so instead of dispersing as the cops are taking the people that are being arrested away, the crowd lingered and starts to get more and more agitated the rougher the cops were. So it was almost like police brutality incited the riot. Can you imagine? So weird. That's probably definitely the only time that's ever happened. Ever happened. And especially has not been happening recently. No way. I I never even thought that that could happen. They're so... No, I'm shocked to hear that. ...ambivalent. Mm-hmm. So... Right, yeah. Um, one woman was being pushed into a cop car, and the cop hit her over the head, and so she starts calling out for the crowd to do something. So within minutes, it's full-on uprising. The police and mm-hmm. their prisoners and a journalist hole up themselves inside the stone wall, but the crowd outside kept breaking in and, like, getting pushed back, and it goes this back and forth forever. So... Eventually, the crowd outside set the building on fire. The fire department showed up and very quickly put out the fire and successfully dispersed the crowd. Interesting. Um, But for five days afterwards, the protests continued and often involved thousands of people. A lot of people say that Marsha started the riots. She... It's a really conflicting story. Like, everybody has a different story around it, pretty much. Some people said that she didn't get there until about halfway through the riots. Some people said that she climbed a tree and threw a heavy bag and shattered a police um, windshield. Um, She herself said she got her civil rights and threw a shot glass at the mirror, which obviously became known as the shot glass heard around the world. 
because oh my god <laughs> how could it not how could it not but either way it's like it's pretty universally agreed that she was one of the first to resist the police and everybody everybody says that the drag queens were the vanguard like they were oh, can you imagine oh, i love that i love i love it. that i love and they're like they're the group discriminated on within their own group and they're fucking leading the parade on this riot i just yeah yeah so talking about it she said we were just saying no more police brutality and we had enough of police harassment in the village and other places weird again so so weird. what a uh, what an unreasonable thing to what? want to stop I just can't even imagine. Wow. Um, it was the inciting incident that started a whole bunch of gay rights organizations. Um, and then on the one year anniversary, thousands of people marched from Christopher Street to Central Park chanting, say it loud, gay is proud. And it was America's first ever gay pride parade. Oh. Yes. I love it oh. too much. Oh, man. Okay. So that's chills. Year, I know. I know. Um, 1970, same year, one year after it happened, Marsha joined her good friend, Sylvia Rivera, another drag queen, trans woman, whatever term you want to use. They founded STAR, Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, as an advocate for young trans people. And for a while, I think for like three years, they had an apartment where they could like house them, clothe them, feed them, and be older mentors two younger trans people that are like trying to figure out this new world that they're braving. Um, she said her goal was to see gay people liberated and free and to have equal rights that other people have in America with her gay brothers and sisters out of jail and on the streets again. She added in reference to the mm -hmm. radical politics of the time, we believe in picking up the gun, starting a revolution if necessary. So when they talk about it, Marsha always gives Sylvia the credit for star. She's like, no, it was her brainchild. She knew what she wanted to do. I was just one of the Queens behind her. But then Sylvia gives credit to Marsha and it's like, no, she was the mother <laughs> of the movement. Like they're the best, best friends. And I love them. Um, I'm not going to go super deep into Sylvia's everything because she needs her own babe town episode because she's incredible. Yeah. Um, but there's this, I have, there's this one thing. Okay. 1973 Pride Parade. Um, Marsha and Sylvia were told that they couldn't lead. They wanted the drag queens like buried somewhere in the back. So naturally, Marsha and Sylvia were like, yes, absolutely. Cool, cool, cool. And they went in front of the front banner and led it by themselves to be like, actually, fuck yourselves. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so they get to the end of the march and Sylvia is like fighting all day to get up on stage and speak. And they finally let her get up there and immediately everybody starts booing her. And so she finally, she's like trying to get them to listen. She finally gets them to quiet down. And she's like, I'm fighting for you. I'm we're fighting to get like all of these LGBTQ plus people out of jail and back on the streets. What are you doing? And she's literally booed off the stage. It's the most heartbreaking thing ever. I don't know. It was, the, the video is in one of the documentaries. I don't remember which one. But it's awful. So that night, she went home. 
and attempted to die by suicide, but Marsha found her and saved her life. So after that, Sylvia mm-hmm. left the left the movement, which of, of course she did. They turned their backs on yeah. her. Yeah. Um, right. So everybody talks about how eccentric Marsha was, how like bright and like attracting she was. Like everybody just like loved her. She often talked about King Neptune in the river and her father as like this entwined entity. And she would give offerings to the water for herself and others and then walk naked up Christopher street until the police picked her up. Um, And then she'd be kept for two to three months. They would put a medical injection in her back to calm her down and send her back out on the streets. They said she'd be a zombie for about a month. And then the same old Marsha was offering gifts up to Neptune. She was back. Everything was normal again. I'm like, I, it's so exhausting. Wow. But Holy um, shit. the thing that like made her famous was when Andy Warhol made a print out of her. And then she began performing with a drag group called the Hot Peaches. Now the Hot Peaches. <laughs> I've only seen a couple of clips, but my dude, the Hot Peaches. A, what a wonderful name. Yes. A, what I would not give to be at one of their performances. Oh my God. Oh my God. Yeah. I j- <sighs> okay. So 1970, her mental health starts kind of going downhill. She was having breakdowns where she would talk to herself and wander up and then just like end up miles away. She would randomly get in fights with people and be really physically intimidating. She was in and out of institutions And she acknowledged that, like, something was going on with her mental health, but she didn't really know what it was. She did say, quote, I may be crazy, but that don't make me wrong, which I think is a very important thing (laughs) to remember about people that are written off as being crazy. Or like, oh, well, they have mental health issues. Oh, well, they have whatever, like, and immediately are written off. It's like, no, no, that doesn't mean that they're wrong. It means they're struggling with mental health and need help. Um. A lot of people were like, well, you know, it was years of taking drugs that rotted her brain. And, like, granted, I'm not a psychologist or psychiatrist in any way. But could it also be that she was rejected by the people that she was fighting for, regularly attacked, shot, given medical injections to calm her down, arrested constantly? Like, maybe it wasn't just drugs. Maybe. Right. Might have been. Constantly things. being attacked for who you are also has an effect um so in 1980 she was invited to ride in the lead car at the pride parade and that was the year that she found like her her permanent residence she moved in with this guy named randy wicker who was another activist he told her that she couldn't come and go from the building and drag so every time she left she was in like layers and layers of clothes and then by the time she got to christopher street she would have transformed and I just love that, like, as she gets farther away, like, her dress falls out of her trench yeah. coat. And then, like, you know, like, little steps as she gets there. Um, she was friends with Wicker's partner, and she cared for him as he was dying of AIDS until he passed away in 1990. In 1992, she went public with her own positive HIV diagnosis, saying that she'd been living with it for two years. And she was often found at the feet of a statue of the Virgin Mary, praying and mourning for her friends that had died. 
She said, quote, they call me a legend in my own time because there were so many queens gone that I'm one of the few queens left from the 70s and 80s. Just fucking. Oh, man. I can't even. I can't imagine and I don't want to imagine. You know. Yeah. So. um, July. Especially like. Especially because in the 80s, there was such a willful, uh, like, ignoring of AIDS and yeah, pushing it aside and saying it doesn't matter because it's a gay disease. It's a gay it doesn't disease. matter. We don't need to we don't need to look into it at all. So to just like have all of your friends dying of this disease and not have anyone give a shit. Like no one wants nobody to gave a no shit in the 80s. Touch you. Nobody wants like. Right. God, the more I research about the AIDS crisis, the more I just want to sit in a hole and cry forever. Um, yeah. So several days after the interview where she went public with her positive HIV diagnosis, she was seen for the last time. And on July 6th, 1992, her body was pulled from the Hudson River near the Christopher Street Piers. Her death was immediately ruled as a suicide. And all of her friends were like, excuse me, absolutely not are you going to look into this? And the police were like, no, it was a suicide. Bye-bye. So later in 1992, the authorities reclassified the case to drowning from undetermined causes. And then in 2012, they agreed to take a fresh look at the case, which officially remains open. Though the cops who originally presided over it have all retired and refused to talk to anybody. The autopsy was remarkably unhelpful and somehow get this, her case file is missing. It's just gone. Oh my God. I didn't know yeah. any of that. I didn't either. It's wow. fucking bonkers, dude. There are all of these people fighting to be like, hey, look into this. She was being followed that night. This family had a grudge against her. Did you look into any of that? And they're like, no. And it's like, okay, so can we see your case file? And they're like, oh, we can't find it. And they're like, sorry, what? And they're talking on the documentary and they're like, yeah, you know, this happens sometimes we lose case files, you know, whatever. And they're like, okay, so no, it should not, that's not, it, that should never, oh ever, God. ever happen. So after Marsha died, Sylvia returned to New York city and the pride movement. And in 2000, mm, Sylvia led and spoke at the worldwide pride March in Rome and 200,000 people were cheering her on and chanting that she was a living myth. Oh, man. I cried like a child. Watching. Wow. It is. It's so crazy. She's like, these people are hugging wow. me and calling me an inspiration. And I like. <sighs> um, so two of my favorite quotes from Marsha P. Johnson. Marsha Payette, no mind, Johnson. The most popular one is, quote, as long as gay people don't have their rights all across America, there's no reason for celebration. But my favorite is, I was a no one, nobody from Nowheresville until I became a drag queen. Oh, yes. I love her so much. Man. Um, they recently announced, I think in 2019, that there's going to be construction of a monument of Marsha and Sylvia in Christopher Park in Greenwich Village. There's a um, 
there is some, oh, I forgot, did I write down what it's called? So the monument will give a name and a face to overlooked activists because most of the time the fight for LGBTQ plus rights is seen as a white gay male thing. Um, so by putting the spotlight on Marsha, who is black, and Sylvia, who is Latina, the statue will start to like work against the whitewashing of the gay pride movement. Um, there is one monument across from Stonewall, but a lot of members of the community have criticized it because it literally just depicts white cisgender people. And they're like, Hey, there's so much more to it than mm. that. So there's going there's to so be so much more. Yeah. Um, I'm so excited for that. There are two documentaries about her life. Um, the documentary on Netflix is called the death and life of Marsha P. Johnson by David France. And that one goes more into following the people that are pressuring investigators to the, find the real cause of death and also the fight for trans rights universally. So that one's more about like the investigation and the fight for rights. The other um, documentary is called pay it. No mind the life and times of Marsha P. Johnson by Michael Casino and Richard Morrison. That one's on YouTube and it's more clips of the time and like interviews with her friends. And it's, oh, it's just wonderful. Wow. Um, and there is now the Marsha P. Johnson Institute. It is Marsha P.org, which I love. Um, their, <laughs> their statement, their uh, vision, I guess. The Marsha P. Johnson Institute protects and defends the human rights of black transgender people. We do this by organizing, advocating, and creating an intentional community heal developing transformative leadership and promoting our collective power. We intend to reclaim Marsha P. Johnson and our relationship as black trans people to her life and legacy. It is our, it is in our reclaiming of Marsha that we give ourselves permission to reclaim autonomy to our minds, to our bodies and to our futures. We were founded both as a response to the murders of black trans women and women of color and how that is connected to our exclusion from social justice issues, namely racial gender and reproductive justice, as well as gun violence. If you want to donate, wow. to them, if you have any money, please give it to them. I love them. And that's the story of Marsha Pay and No Mind Johnson. That was great. It's fucking heartbreaking, dude. Like, that's the that's the thing too is that like, and I have been reading a lot about this in the last couple of months, but um, it's that thing of like making sure. That that your feminism is intersectional because if it's not, then Get you the are not a feminist. Like yeah. if, if you call yourself a feminist and you don't believe that trans women are women or that black trans women's lives matter or that black trans lives period matter, like then you're not a feminist. So you need to really rethink a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> and like there, there's been so much talk about this lately and I think it's great and I hope that it becomes much more um you know it shouldn't it shouldn't even be a question it shouldn't be a question of whether or not like it's I saw it put really well earlier today of like of like yeah white women have to deal with misogyny discrimination 
black women have to deal with misogyny, discrimination, and racial discrimination. There's, there's an extra step to it. You can't say that feminism affects everybody differently because, or the same, because it, it doesn't, doesn't. like, it's all different. Um, And if you are not aware of those differences or are worried about talking about those differences, then kind of need to reevaluate a lot of things. Yeah. So especially if you're not willing to even talk about them. Right. And what are you doing? Um, speaking of, I have a correction. Yeah. Do you remember when we were talking about Mitch Fest, the feminist music festival in Michigan? Recently yeah. found out that when it was operating, it allowed trans men to go, but it did not allow trans women to go because it saw trans women as being men using their male privilege to choose to live as women and attend this festival. And that negates the idea that that negates the whole identity of trans people. Right. And so that's fucking horrible. Um, Whenever we start the next feminist music festival, we're not going to do that. Yeah. Community, the world to source my shit as as quickly as I can. Um, History.com. Article on CNN by Christina Maxuri. Uh, Amazing article in the New York Times by Sewell Chan called Marsha P. Johnson, a transgender pioneer and activist who was a fixture of Greenwich Village street life. Um, USA Today Mm -hmm. had a article by Dalvin Brown called Marsha P. Johnson, transgender hero of Stonewall riots finally gets her due. Mm. Uh, Article in Smithsonian Mag by Malin Solly. And then there was an article... Um, on newnownext.com by Sam Manzella that's two trans Stonewall legends are finally getting a monument in New York. Oh, okay, I know. That's great. There it is. That's my shit. That's great. I love it. It was... Good it work. Was, like, really fascinating and also very, very humbling to research her. Mm-hmm. I'm like dive deep this week and it was really really great and I wish I'd done it a lot sooner but yeah dude yeah yeah she was on my list she's been on my list for a very long Forever. time but yeah I was always like ah oh, this is such a heavy hitter it's you know I really want to make sure and do it yeah. justice so I never and we were going with more like unknown people right and I feel like in our community at least a lot of people know Marsha's name but also mm-hmm. it doesn't matter we need to talk about her right Right. There are yeah. some that Maybe. you just, you have to talk about. We got to talk about her. Yeah. Who's your babe? Wow. Good work. Thanks friend. Who's your, uh, who's your other, other babe? Oh, um, well, I think that, well, I kind of have, I kind of have three, okay. two for similar reasons and one for, so my first is my cousin, Alex. She had a little baby. Yay. Kirk. I've got a little tiny baby cousin now, and it's been a little bit of a stressful ride, but he's coming home today, and he's really, really, really fucking cute. He's got a little tiny mohawk. He's super cute. He's a very cute little kid. So we have a new little family member, which is very exciting. Um, and then I have been um, loving following Rachel Cargill on instagram if you Mm -hmm. don't follow her go follow her 
she is brilliant. Um, she posted a really long thing this morning about how it shouldn't matter that it, it, when, when we see black people being murdered, it shouldn't matter if they played violins for kittens or if they are bird watchers or if they went to Harvard, it should be enough that they are people, people being murdered by police. We shouldn't have to do this whole, Oh, well, yeah, but look at what a good person they are to try and get people to care about the fact that they are being murdered by police and by people. Um, I, I struggle with that a lot with people with Rayshard Brooks's death where they were like, well, he tased that cop. And I'm like, great. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. That doesn't, doesn't matter. Mean that he deserves to die. Get out of here. It doesn't matter. Like it, it should be enough talking about Elijah McClain that he was brutally murdered by police. It shouldn't matter that he played the violin for kittens. Is that a really terrible, sad detail? Yes, absolutely. Um, that should not be the thing that makes you care about his murder. That was a great post to read this morning. Um, she's doing a project called The Great Unlearn, and she is posting like every day um, Instagram comments that she gets and just breaking down like, hey, here is a stereotype that this person probably doesn't mean to be a stereotype, but it is. And yeah. here's how this person is thinking about this. And here's how you can change that. It's brilliant. She's brilliant. And then um, I've also been loving following for a while Bernice King on mm. Twitter, yes. MLK's daughter. She is great. Dr. Bernice. If you don't follow her, go follow her. Um, she's fascinating. She has obviously a fascinating perspective for many reasons. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, if you guys don't follow them, Rachel Cargill, I'm sure she's got a Twitter, but I follow her on Instagram. Um, I do too. And Bernice King on Twitter. Twitter. Uh, go follow them. They're both amazing women. 100%. With lots to teach. Yeah. Also found out that all of um, uh, all of Angela Davis's speeches are on Spotify. They sure are. So go listen and learn. You know. Go do that. Yeah. Who's yours? Uh, mine is. Wonderful, talented, beautiful Ms. Laverne Cox this week. Um, disclosure? Is that what you're talking? Yeah. Well, yeah. so it started with disclosure. Um, it's, God, it is so good. It is so good. And it, I haven't watched it yet, but I'm very excited to. So everyone that they interview is trans, and they have a wonderful, I mean a very honest, straightforward discussion about trans yeah. representation in the media for generations and how it needs to change and what change would look like and what, you know, like, oh, it's so fucking fascinating. And then she was on Brene Brown's podcast to talk about disclosure. Incredible, incredible interview. She's also just like, she seems like such a wonderful, warm genuine human being um and to top it all off we just started watching orange is the new black i know i'm the latest person to the party ever oh yeah wow. but i she's just so wonderful and she's i'm a huge fan right and it's so like part of what they talk about in disclosure is being hired as a trans actor to play trans stereotypes just again and again and again. And I cannot imagine there was, there's one particular actress that booked two shows 
almost back to back and her like her plot lines were identical on both shows because that's the trans plot line wow with a twist you know like I mean it's just like yeah. or write a more fleshed out human right it's yeah. unbelievable but Laverne is doing such good work being in my mind the the champion of this movement right now and of this moment obviously she is not yeah. alone there are many many people with her right she is my entrance to all of this and yeah. I love her and I'm inspired by her and I think she's really fucking funny she's very cool I yeah I've been a big fan of her for that I can read a long it. time Dang, dude. Dang. That was a good one. That was a... Oh, damn. Party in an hour and a half. <laughs> I know. Hey, but a lot of that is like... Oops. Moving me around and... Getting bread. <laughs> yeah, me moving upstairs and... Yeah. Waiting for the microwave and shit, so... Hey, gross back. Well, um, thanks for listening, guys. Yeah, people. Wow. <laughs> And again, it sneaks up. Um, if, you, if you feel like it, um, go throw us a rating or a review or tell your friends and family about us. One of those things. Oh, we do have an announcement <laughs> now that we're at the end. Oh, yeah. Um, right. We are going to take a little bit of a break. Um, we took a break. After twenty after our first twenty episodes, and it seems like a a good place to take a breather and kind of catch up again. Um, especially I'm, as this pandemic is you know still raging, I'm starting to get ready to go back to work. Yeah. Um. And so we're just gonna take a little bit of time, and we're gonna keep recording some episodes, but hold off on posting them just so that we can get caught up and you know we'll don't worry uh, it's not you it's us it's us I think we're not we, breaking up not at all um don't worry. we'll be back beginning of august with more more fresh babes um Ooh, the freshest babes the freshest of babes did i miss anything is that the stuff? I don't think so. I don't think so. We'll be coming back right before our one year anniversary. Oh. Cute. We're so cute. Cute, cute. Yeah. Um, yeah, guys. Give us a follow on everything at Babetown Pod. And we'll keep posting about cool ladies during our break. Yeah, dude. So don't worry. And, and activism. And hey, did you know? Black Lives Matter. Black lives super matter. They super and matter. They shouldn't only matter as part of a trend. Nope. Everybody should be saying black lives matter every single day of their entire lives because yep. it is no less true than it was two weeks ago when everyone was super pumped about it. Yep. So that might just be because you are no longer seeing large scale uh, like media pieces about protests doesn't mean that they are not still happening. Doesn't mean that the movement has calmed down at all all true it will just take a little bit more work to keep it in the forefront of everybody's minds so 
do that work. Keep it in front of your brain. Instead of, um, instead of giving people handshakes moving forward, I'm just going to give us like a little nod and black lives matter. And that'll be my greeting. Probably also my farewell from now on, you know, Mm -hmm. just, just don't forget. Um, I'm a fan of you. I'm a big fan of you. Love this. Love this. Love you. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah. Because obviously we're going to keep. Sounds great. You know, obviously. Break or no break. Yep. 100%. Yeah. 100%. All right, friend. I'll talk to you later, I love friend. You. I love you too. Okay. Hope your brain feels better while you're camping. Thanks. Me too. We'll see. <sighs> All right. Bye. Bye.